Listen, all I, all I really, in that first session, wanted you guys to kind of hear me say is, how many heroes are there in the Bible? <laughs> I, I mean, if you got that, you got the essence, okay? Because you're saying, then it's not good enough just to tell people to be their own heroes, all right? If all you're saying is you just be good, you be better, you be more knowledgeable, you know, you have better doctrine. I'm not saying that those things are not in the Bible, but they are not in the redemptive context, okay? So keeping things in context helps people remember there's, there's only one true hero, and ultimately we're identifying him as the gospel message, even though we're not trying to make him appear everywhere, okay? We are trying to make the grace of God show everywhere and then say, you know what? That comes to its fullest manifestation in Christ. But we're not saying Jesus appears in all the texts. All right? Now, having said that, we need to talk about the process. How do we do that? Okay? How do we be fair to the text, you know, be preachers of the text, and not impose on the text what is not there? Okay? So this is Roman numeral two, the process of Christ-centered exposition. How is God revealing his gracious character? So how can you... How can you preach the gospel from anywhere in the Bible? Okay, not just wait for Matthew 26. How can you preach the gospel from anywhere in the Bible by understanding that the grace of God is what's unfolding? Now, item A there is is a huge category. I mean, we could spend not just tonight, we could spend many nights unfolding what item A is. I'm just going to say it quickly. There are kind of four major schools of this thing we're talking about tonight, which is called biblical theology. Have you heard that terminology? Okay, systematic theology is looking at things in their segments. Okay, biblical theology is looking at the whole, okay, the big message, and trying to find things in their context of the whole. Systematic theology, looking at the Bible with a magnifying glass. Okay, good thing. Biblical theology, looking at the Bible with a fisheye lens. If you look through a fisheye lens, what do you see? Out to the horizons. Do you see? I look at this text, but I push fisheye lens. Well, I see, where's the context? Okay, what's the context of grace that's unfolding? Now, in the history of biblical theology, there's kind of four ways of doing this. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you that you paid this big money to come here tonight so you'd learn these big four categories and then tell you they're not real important. Okay? I might, you know, so you get your money's worth by learning. Here are the four big categories. All right? One way that people say, how is the grace of God in all the Bible? Okay? Is they preach what's called redemptive historical method. Redemptive historical method. That's the very first thing in the parenthesis there. See that? What they do is they say, all right, here I'm in the book of Judges. All right? And, and in the book of Judges, everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and that did not work. So in the redemptive historical record, I learned something. If you just do what's in your own eyes right, that's a sure way to get messed up. That doesn't work which is kind of moving us forward to the next period of biblical history. Saying, well, then what's the other alternative? All right. So when the people, by doing what was in their own eyes, what was right, got messed up, what was their next solution? Instead of having judges, what are we going to have? We'll have a king. All right. And we'll pick strongest, best-looking, smartest, most able, and we'll pick the best human, and he'll rescue us. How does that work? That didn't work either, okay? Now, the reason I'm going through that kind of redemptive historical record is because all of us in this room probably are trained in kind of Western culture, and we're trying to interpret the Old Testament with Western eyes, 
So it is written primarily with an Eastern perspective. It's a Hebrew perspective, not a Greek, Greco-Roman perspective, okay? Now, if you're in a Western culture, you want to go A leads to B leads to C leads to D. We want to think in a linear way, you know, and all of us want, we don't want a Bible. We want a systematics textbook, right? That's where somebody says, wow, you know, why are all those stories in there? They're just messing us up, you know? You know, we want somebody to just say, what is the doctrine, you know? And, and we're wondering why the Bible is written as it is. Because the Bible is saying, listen, you shall have no other gods before me. And then God deals experientially with his people saying, here's one form of idol. Here's another form. Here's another kind of idolatry. Here's another kind of idolatry. Here's another kind of And he deals with real people in real situations to teach us at a heart level what idolatry is instead of a systematics book. Okay? Now, that is a very, if you will, Eastern narrative way of thinking that will actually help you understand the Bible if you, if you grasp that the Bible's narratives have a purpose. Here's the reason. If you are in an Oriental or African culture, you don't define things in a linear way. This leads to this leads to this leads to this. You know how things are usually described? Somebody's saying, in a circle. You say, here's the point, but you speak all around it to describe its borders in order to make the point. Now, I want you to think how the Old Testament is written, all right? We already said, all right, there was a time that everybody did what was right in their own eyes in the time of the judges. That didn't work. So, oh, let's have a king, all right? Best guy of human choosing. And when we pick the best human, how does that work? Doesn't work either. People are still messed up. Why are they messed up? Because they've been given the law of God but they don't follow the law of God. So when they have a king to try to keep them in order, even the human king doesn't work. God gives a sacrifice system with a priesthood to say, listen, even if you don't keep the law, I'm going to provide sacrifices for you and priests to instruct you in the way of the law. And as long as you have human priests, does that work out for them? Does that fix everything? All right, human judges don't fix it. Human kings don't fix it. Human priests don't fix it. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll send some prophets and the prophets will work with the priests to instruct the kings in what they should do, and that's going to fix it. All these human prophets, does that fix it? As a matter of fact, what do the people of Israel do to all the prophets? What does Jesus say they do to the prophets? You kill the prophets. Well, it doesn't work either. Okay, now listen. Here's what's happened. If, you, if, you're, if you're thinking not in a linear way, but in a true redemptive historical way, ultimately God is saying this. You tried human judges and human kings, and human priests, and human prophets, and human laws, and human law keeping. And this didn't work, and this didn't work, and this didn't work, and this didn't work, and this didn't work. You know what? Not this. Not this, not this, not this, not this. You need a better judge. You need a better law keeper. You need a better priest. You need a better king. Not this, not this, not this, not this, but what? This. That's when we interpret the Bible wrongly. We go to the judges and say, you should be like Samson. Actually, the purpose of the Bible is that you should not be like Samson. Right? You should, be like, you should be like King David. No, David wasn't the answer. There had to be one from David who was the answer. You should be like Moses. No, the law, Moses couldn't keep his own law. That's not the point. Okay? So if we don't understand the redemptive context, 
will say some passages of the Bible are meant to be bridges, bridging out of some passages are meant to be dead ends. Don't go that way. And we see this when we see things in their redemptive historical perspective. That's one way of reading the Bible, saying where are we in redemptive history? That helps me read it correctly. Another way, second thing, is called doctrinal instruction. Some people do biblical theology, saying how is the grace unfolding? Because they look for the doctrine, okay, that's gracious. Like, it says of Abraham in Genesis 15, he believed God and it was what? Counted to him for righteousness. Now, this say he did what was right and it was counted. He believed, it was, it was by faith he was counted righteous, okay? Is there any grace message in there? Not by what your works are, but by your faith are you counted right? Is there any grace in that? Of course. It's the doctrinal message. If you are looking at redemptive historical method, okay, if some of you are, you read, are you reading Gradanus? Okay. Gradanus is redemptive historical. That's how he's doing biblical theology, okay? If you listen to D.A. Carson, you listen to any Carson stuff? D.A. Carson, do you know Gospel Coalition stuff, some of you? Okay, Tim Keller. D.A. Carson, when he does biblical theology, he's almost always doing doctrinal instruction. How is grace doctrinally being taught in this passage? Okay, how is grace doctrinally appearing? Abraham believed God and was counted for him for righteousness. What doctrine is there? Well, justification by faith. That's what's there. Or you could look at the account of Hosea and Gomer. Remember Hosea, the prophet in the Old Testament? God said to him, I want you to marry Gomer. What was her profession? She was a prostitute, okay? And ultimately, she went back to her prostitution, right? And then it says, just as Hosea took back Gomer, so the Lord took back Israel, though she had gone a-whoring as Gomer had. So Israel was faithless. God remained what? Faithful. Okay. Is there any doctrine of grace here? Of course, right? So there's a way in which we say, all right, what doc that is D.A. Carson. If you listen to some of the sermons of D.A. Carson, Gospel Coalition. The next form of biblical theology that's often you hear is called, is called relational interaction. Okay. Now that is where you simply say, all right, in what way is God relating to his people in a gracious way. I'm going to come back to this, but you've already heard me say it. I look at the text and I say, how is God providing what people cannot provide for themselves? Just that little message. How is God providing for people who cannot provide for themselves? Does God in the Old Testament ever provide strength for weak people? Food for hungry people. Forgiveness for sinful people. Do you hear God providing for people who cannot provide for themselves? You're saying, how is God relating graciously to his people? That is very, very common, and we'll come back to it. Last form of biblical theology is called literary motif. Some of you listen to Tim Keller. Tim Keller was trained by a man named Edmund Clowney, and it's almost always literary motif. Tim will do these things, he'll say. Listen, if you go in the Old Testament and you find it where Moses struck the rock, remember that, to bring out water? Okay. It says there that when God spoke to Moses, he says, Moses, the people are complaining. So I will go and I will stand before the rock and then you strike it 
and I will bring forth water to save the people. Now, Tim will look at that and he'll say, folks, this, this is pretty amazing. When you look at the word stand in that passage in Exodus, it's actually a verb that is how a servant stands in humility before a master. If God is appearing to Israel at this stage in the wilderness, in what form is God appearing? Pillar of what? Pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So if God is going to stand before the rock, he's going to be standing before the rock in his Shekinah glory, in the appearance of glory. And then says to Moses, I'm going to stand before the rock in the attitude of a servant. And then I want you to strike the rock. That means if Moses strikes the rock and has to go through the glory cloud, what is he actually striking? He's striking his servant who is God. God says, I will be your servant, and you strike me in order for me to save my people. Does it remind you of anything? The Apostle Paul got it exactly, right? 1 Corinthians 10, he says, that rock was whom? Christ. Okay? Because he was the one who in humility knelt before the people and took the blow that we deserved. Paul understood precisely. Now, when you hear Tim Keller do it, you just kind of go, how did he do that? You know, you know, it's just kind of amazing. You know, you just go, wow, it's just great. Now, Tim, because he's such a good Bible scholar, you know, he, he just has the ability to say, you know, if you look at this in the Old Testament, you'll see it echoed in the New Testament. And he just has a great way of tying together the literary connections. Does that make sense? Now, the reason I'm doing all those things is saying, all right, here are these big schools of thought. Okay, what you just have is two seminary court. You know, two seminary courses in ten minutes, okay? So here, here are four ways of doing biblical theology, okay? Redemptive historical method, looking for the doctrinal instruction, or you can look for the relational interaction, or you can look for the literary connections. Now, having said all that, I want you to kind of go, oh, no, I've got to preach tomorrow. Which of those am I going to do? Okay. And I'm going to tell you, don't worry about it, okay? Don't worry. You, you now have the big picture. And you can do biblical theology in ways that are much simpler, okay? And you can do this. I mean, you, you can just readily do it. It's by looking at the text and recognizing no matter where we are in redemptive revelation, biblical texts are revealing the grace of God in one of four ways. They always are, okay? One way is this. Some texts are predictive of the work of Christ. What texts are those? I say I'm somewhere in the Old Testament and Christ is being predictive. What kind of text am I looking at? Say again. I'm looking at some messianic prophecy. Okay. It could be in the major prophets, the minor prophets, the messianic psalms, right? It could be in, you know, the book of Deuteronomy. It could be in Leviticus. You know, there are aspects of Christ that are being predicted. You got it. If you're in one of those texts, you're going to get redemptive revelation. You're going to be fine. You're going to recognize it. Now, the trouble is not all the Old Testament is prophetic. So that's one method, but it's not the only method. A second way in which you see the grace of God being unfolded is because some texts are preparing us to understand what Christ would do. Can you think of that? Not predicting. What are some texts that are preparing us to understand who Christ was and what he would do? Okay, you know, 
anything dealing with the temple or the sacrifice system, right? And actually the whole book of Hebrews is saying that, right? These things were set down as examples, as testimonies to us, so that we would understand who Christ is and what he would do, all right? So we would say the sacrifice system. What about the Old Testament priesthood? What about the Old Testament kings? After all, remember we're told that Jesus was a greater whom? David. Jesus came as the greater David. Okay, He was the line of David, but he was a greater David. So we're understanding there are aspects of the Old Testament that are preparing us to understand who Christ is and what he would do. Third category. Okay, Certain passages are reflective of who Christ is or what he would do. Now, this is the, this is the one that you'll use the most. Okay, and I'm going to come back to it, but let me just do it right now. It's where we look at a text and we say, what does this reflect about the nature of Christ or the nature of humanity? Hear that question? Look at What does this tell me about the nature of God who provides redemption? Or what does this tell me about the nature of humanity that requires redemption? Okay, you hear those two questions? I'm going to come back to this one, but just okay, reflect it. How does this reflect about humanity or God? Fourth category. I look at a text and I say, how does this result from the work of Jesus? Now, why is it that God listens to your prayer? Does God listen to your prayer because your prayers are better than the prayers of other people? Does God listen to your prayers because you say Jesus' name, amen, at the end? Does God listen to your prayers because you use the words of Scripture? Does God use, listen to your prayers because you got up at 6 a.m. to pray them? Why does God listen to your prayers? Who's interceding for you? Christ. Who's already gone. Why? Why is it that you can boldly approach the throne of grace even as a sinner? Because you've got a great high priest who's gone ahead of you. Do you hear that your prayers are heard as a result of what Christ has already done? Have you ever heard a message that says, listen, I'm going to teach you how to pray. And everything depends on what you do. You get up early. You have longer prayers. You use the words of Scripture. You use the Acts of CrossFit. And every aspect of your prayer life depends upon you. What did you just forget? The one who makes your prayers acceptable and intercedes for you. At times, I think when I hear sermons on prayer, we might as well be Hindus, you know, and we take out our prayer wheels and let's just spin them, you know, because it all just depends on how much we do of something, right, that makes our prayers heard. Instead of saying, no, our prayers are heard as a result of what Jesus has done. Now, I'm going to finish this section by saying, I hope what I've done is just put fear into you. Okay, because this would have everything like, oh, no, I preach tomorrow. I'm supposed to be aware of where we are in the biblical record. And it's got to be doctrinally instructive and it's got to have grace in it. And how do I do all that? Okay, you know, okay, I'm going to make it having said I've given you the big picture. Okay, you've been to the seminary class. You've heard about literary motifs. You've heard all that stuff. And I'm going to tell you, I can make it even simpler. You can do this. You can do this by going to any text and putting on a new set of glasses, okay? And this set of glasses is basically just two questions. I look at the text. Do you see where this is? Okay. Uh, this is item B under Roman numeral 2. Okay. These two lenses that we can look at in all contexts of scriptures and think, 
how is this passage revealing the grace of God? How can I do biblical theology, see how the grace of God is being revealed, no matter where I'm in the Bible? Okay? We take Jason's glasses, okay? Hold on, look at the text. And one lens, okay, you ready, Jason? You ready? One, no, I'm teasing. One, one lens, okay, is just a question. What does this text tell me about the nature of God who provides redemption? The other lens is, what does this text tell me about the nature of humanity that requires redemption? Now, if we will just put on those glasses, okay, and look at any text, we will begin to see the grace of God echoing. I'll show you. What if I say what I'm preaching on this Sunday is the commandment, you shall not steal. Now, how are you going to make Jesus appear out of that? You shall not. Well, let's see. Jesus didn't steal. No, he doesn't. <laughs> no, no. If you say, how do you get grace out of a commandment? How do you do that? Well, let's do the things. All right, let's just do the hard work. If I preach a sermon on you shall not steal, I say, all right, this is in the Decalogue. God gives this in the Ten Commandments to his people. And by the way, it doesn't just appear in the Old Testament. It appears in the New Testament. Because Paul says to those who are at Thessalonica, you shall not steal. You shall not take anything if it's not your own. You shall not take big things. You shall not even take little things. You shall not even steal another person's reputation by speaking ill of them. If it is not yours, you may not take it. Stealing is bad. It is wrong. Do not do it. You shall not steal. Ready for the benediction? No, that's not enough. That doesn't work. Listen, if I really say to people, you shall not steal, and they understand its full implications, what do they understand about God? What does the commandment, you shall not steal, tell me about the nature of God who gives the command? What do I understand about the nature of God if I understand his commandment? You shall not steal. What do I understand about God? Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, but if he gave the command, what do I understand about him? If he gave it, what do I understand? Nick? Okay, I understand something about his nature, right? So I understand he has integrity, okay? If he doesn't steal ever, if you will, ultimately I understand that he's holy, right? I also understand something about his heart. If he's telling me don't steal, what's he protecting? Just my property? What else is he protecting? Other people's property. Is he protecting relationships? Is he protecting families, homes, society? God is expressing his holiness and his love. If I really understand any command, ultimately I understand God is unfathomably holy. Okay, what's the other question? What does this commandment reveal about me? You shall not ever take anything. That is not your own. Not big, not little, not even somebody. If I really understand the command, what do I understand about my nature? I'm a thief. Exactly right. Now listen, what, what do we, if I just understand the command and I put on the lenses, all right? What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about me? I just learned God is holy and I'm a thief. There is a problem here. 
and I can't fix it. Why? Because, because what? Because I'm a thief. I can't, I can't clean a white shirt with dirty hands, right? I can't fix it. So what does the Apostle Paul say in Galatians 3? The law was our schoolmaster to do what? Lead us to Christ. If there's a problem, God's holy and I'm a thief, and I can't fix it, somebody else has got to fix it. And the Apostle Paul understood that. He said, if you really understand the law, you will understand your dependence upon another than yourself because you can't fix this problem. You are also, remember, a fallen creature in a fallen condition. You can't fix the problem. These Old Testament narratives and laws are always leading us forward. They're always saying, you can't fix this problem. If you begin to understand that, I will tell you the most moralistic passages in the Bible, if you really understand them in terms of biblical theology, you will begin to see grace. All right? I, I know when my son was a senior in high school, he became a rock collector. And one of the things that he did was he took me on an expedition one time to hunt for geodes. Remember geodes, the ones that have the crystals on the inside? On the outside, they look no different than other rocks, right? All right, so I'm, I'm kind of in, we're in this creek bed, and, and my son is saying, well, just help me collect. I They're just all rocks. We need to collect geodes. Listen, I didn't see anything until he began to tell me and help me see. Here was the shape. Here was the size. Here was the texture. And the more I learned, I said, oh, there's one. There's, there's, they're everywhere. They're, they're everywhere. If we begin looking at the Bible, and the first thing we say, here's duty and doctrine. And I'm saying, where's the grace? No, I don't see it. It's not there. I said, no, put on the glasses. And you'll begin to see grace, even what may appear to be the most moralistic, command-oriented verses. If you will put on these glasses, you'll start to see grace. Now think of it. Let's go to the book of Proverbs. My son, do not be seduced by the beauty of a woman. <laughs> How do you get grace out of that? My son, do not be seduced by the beauty of a woman. Well, okay, let's put on the glasses. All right, ready? What does that tell me about God? My son, do not be seduced by the beauty of a woman. What is, what is God telling me about his nature when he gives a command like that in the book of Proverbs? Don't be seduced by the beauty of a woman. What's God telling me about his nature? He's pure. Because he gives that command. He's pure. What else do I learn about God? My son, do not be seduced by the... What else am I learning about God? Say again. He's a father. So he cares. He's pure, but he also cares. Tell me again, what's he protecting? If he says, my son, do not be seduced by it. What's he protecting? Say again. He's protecting marriages. He's protecting our lives, our families, our minds, our hearts, our relationships with our spouses. All God is ultimately holy and compassionate. I'm learning all that about God. By the way, what did I learn about myself? My son did not be seduced. But what am I learning about my own nature in that command? I learned I'm very vulnerable, don't I? I learned this is the temptation of humanity. Even, even somebody who's identified as a son of a king in the book of Proverbs, even that person of privilege is temptable and vulnerable, and we all know it. What did I just learn about the grace of God? I'm vulnerable. I'm, I'm prone to temptation. And yet my God is compassionate and fatherlike, even though he is pure and holy. Is there any grace here? 
Now, what we all fear when we do biblical theology is that we're going to import the New Testament on the Old, okay? That I'm going to say something that's not true. And the reason that I've kind of backed away from all these big categories of redemptive historical theology and literary motifs and all that is I'm going to say, listen, guys, you'll get there, okay? And all those tools will serve you. But right now, you can do this without making it overly complex. It's Jason's earlier question. If you are willing to look at the text and just as part of the process of saying, I'm going to explain to you what this text means. Is there duty or doctrine? Of course there is. But there's also a redemptive context. God is telling you his gracious nature and he is telling you your vulnerable condition. So if all you say to people is, don't do that, even you will recognize that's not enough. God is making you see you have to be dependent upon him. And if we put things in the redemptive context, we're saying God is showing us how he must rescue us from what we cannot rescue ourselves. And that message is always going to be unfolding in the Bible. Okay. Now, where I am on your sheets, okay, is just at the end of Roman numeral 2. Okay. What I want to, all I've done so far, all I've done so far is just say, I want you to know what the Bible's talking about so that we preach the message of the Bible. It's not just saying you be a better person or you be a smarter person. That is not what's happening. It's actually saying you be a more dependent person. That's always what's happening. God is the hero rescuing people who cannot rescue themselves. And that message is being revealed over and over again in lots of different ways if we will just put on the lenses. Now, we're going to take a break in about 10 minutes, but before we get there, okay, I want to ask you the question, why do we need to do this? Okay, Why do we need to see this grace context of all the Scripture? The reason is Roman numeral 3. Okay, The purpose of this Christ-centered exposition is item A. Too many people confuse their who and their do. That is, they confuse their justification with their sanctification. They look at the text and they say, this just said, don't steal. And I just told you, don't steal. And as long as you do that, you'll be okay with God. Now, do you understand what I just said? I just said, you're okay with God because of what you do. In which case, I made who the source of your justification? I made you the source of your justification. Because I made your sanctification the source of your justification. Hear that? I based who you are on what you do. But the gospel is the opposite. The gospel bases our sanctification on our justification. The Bible says you do who you are. It doesn't say you are what you do. After all, you were what to Christ before he saved you? You were his what? Enemy when he saved you. And now he says, listen, live as children of light, which is what you are. Okay? Now, this has a wording in biblical theology. I want you to hear me. It's very important. It's this. He says, it's this. The imperatives of Scripture, what we are to do, are always based on the indicatives, who we are. And the order is not reversible. The imperatives are based on the indicatives. And the order is not reversible. And yet almost every relationship we have in life is the reverse. 
So people say, listen, if you do a good job, I will pay you a good salary, right? If you are good to me, I will love you. And if you're not good to me, we're done, all right? People base their relationships, they base their salaries, they base their careers on what they do. They establish in this world who they are based on what they do. And the gospel is the opposite. The gospel says what you do does not establish what, who you are. What you do does not establish who you are. Christ establishes who you are. And what you do is a result of who you are in Christ. The imperatives are based on the indicatives, and the order is not reversible. Now, the reason that we are showing the grace of God unfolding in all the Scripture is so that we will point again and again to God's people, and we will say, God loved you when you were his enemy. God loved David when David failed. God used David when he was messed up. God made Jesus the greater David because David was not David enough. And yet God loved him and held him and preserved him and made his line holy. Not because of what David did, but because of who God was. God was the hero. And his great hero work is making you his own, not based upon what you do, but faith in what Christ has done. Now I'm going to read the words and then I'm going to talk about the implications, okay? A, under Roman numeral 3. Too many people confuse their who and their do. That is... They confuse their justification with their sanctification. But we have to recognize what we do does not determine who we are in the gospel. Can you write right beside that? Galatians 2.20. Remember Galatians 2.20? I am what? I am crucified with, with Christ. And I no longer live. But who lives? Christ lives where? In me. In the life that I live in the flesh. I live by faith. In what I do? No, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All right, now here. Everything that's being said is who you are is not based upon what you do. Why? Because you're dead. You're crucified with Christ. You, you, what, what you do is not establishes. How is your identity established? I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but who lives? Christ lives. Where does he live? In me. Now, I have a question for you. If you're dead... And Jesus is alive in you. Who are you? See, nobody wants to say I'm Jesus. Okay, I get it. Okay, all right, I, I get it. All right. So, 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 so I'll help you. Okay, I'll, I'll change the question. If you're dead, and Jesus is alive in you, whose identity do you have? You actually have the identity of Jesus Christ. John Bunyan, the Puritan, said every Christian possesses a magic mirror. One side of the mirror, plain old mirror, all right? I see my, you know, the warts, the blemishes, the wrinkles, see it all. But the other side of the mirror, he said, is the image of Jesus Christ. From which side of the mirror does God look at us? From the Christ side. What is my identity? It's the Christ side. Now, is what I do establishing who I am? No. What I do does not establish... It is Christ who establishes my identity, okay? So many people, if you just ask them, you know, how are you doing? You know, how's your relationship? You know, are you okay with God? Am I okay with God? I don't know. How am I doing today? Hear what they just did? I establish my identity 
based upon my performance, in which case I just confused my justification with my sanctification. My performance established my relationship. That is not the gospel. The gospel is the opposite. God has established our identity, and therefore we are living that out in response to who we are. The reason that we are showing the grace of God in all the Scripture is because we're showing messed up people who by their performance cannot establish their identity of being loved people of God. Only the grace of God can do that. And so over and over again we're saying, it's the grace of God, it's the grace of God. Here's God coming to the rescue. Here's God coming to the rescue. So when Christ comes, we say, there's the great message of rescue, which has been unfolding all the way through Scripture so that people will say, I'm not okay with God based upon what I do. I'm doing things as a consequence of what God has already done. Remember, it's even how the Ten Commandments are established. I want you to remember, there's a prologue to the Ten Commandments. So before God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father. Before God says all those things, he says, by the way, I am the God who brought you what? Out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, therefore obey me. He did not say, you obey me and I'll let you out of Egypt. Hear that? He didn't say, you be a good person and then I'll love you. He said, I have loved you, therefore walk with me. Hear the difference? It will change every relationship in your life. If we grasp the imperative is based on the indicative and the order is not reversible. When Kathy and I, um, my wife and I, began to kind of feel that we had not been preaching the gospel. We had been preaching just human performance. You know, you straighten up, you fly right, you do better. Trouble's in your life because you're not honoring God enough. If you just, if you just honor God, he'll show you his love. It's like, it was all human performance based. I didn't even know it. And when we begin to feel the weight of what we had been saying, we actually put ourselves under a discipline, even of talking to our children. And there, there was a time when I would say to my son, Colin, I would say, Colin, you're a bad boy because you did that. Now, I, I want you to think theologically what I just said. You're a bad boy because you did that. His identity was based upon what? His actions, his performance. You are what you do. That is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says you do what you are. In which case I would say to Colin, as I begin to learn better and more, I'd say, Colin, don't do that. You're my son and I love you. You act in accord with who you are. You are my son. That's established on the basis of a covenant relationship. That's established on the basis of our relationship, our grace, our covenant. It's not established on the basis of what you do. It will change our relationship with our spouses, right? I mean, I'm, I'm enough of a North American male, you know, that, 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 that John Wayne or Harrison Ford are my heroes, you know. So, you know, and that means, you know, if I got problems with my wife, right, what happens? You know, I either get mad or I get real quiet. I want her to know what she did, you know. But I can't get mad because I'm a Christian, so I get real quiet, you know. In which case, I'm treating her according to what? Her actions. But according to the Bible, she is an heir together with me of the grace of life. 
She's in a covenant relationship with me, which means when there are difficulties between us, are there things to work through? Yes, but they are worked through on the basis of the marriage covenant, not on the basis of actions, which means I still treat her with respect and love, and even if we work through things. We treat each other on the basis of the covenant, the indicatives. The imperatives flow out of what we are. Who we are does not get formed on the basis of what we do. Recognize that? Almost every marriage couple we know, right? If they, if they come apart, if they're coming undone, it's because I say she did this or didn't do that or he did this. or he did, and, and they're making their decisions based upon performance, not based upon relationship. Hear the difference? It will happen in the church. Somebody messed me over, right? So what do I do back? They treated me, so I... We treat them according to their actions. But according to the Scriptures, they are part of the body of Christ. And Christ doesn't, does, does not only indwell me, Christ indwells them. So I treat them as a member of the body of Christ indwelt by the Spirit of God. I treat them according to who they are are even though their actions may offend me but i don't treat people do we have things to work through of course we have things to work through but we do it biblically because we are treating each other according to our covenant not according to our performance everything changes if we say we are going to live out the gospel that is being revealed in all the scriptures and not just be revealing dealing with people according to their performance of duty and doctrine we're revealing the grace of God because we have to live it. So, item B under Roman numeral 3. Faithful exposition shows that the imperative rests on the indicative and this order is not reversible. Because you paid so much money, I'll actually tell you the origin of that quote. <laughs> His name is Herman Ritterboss. Herman Ritterboss. And it's the famous statement of biblical theology as it affects Christian ethics. Okay? He's saying we live according to who we are. We are not according to what we live. I mean, it's, it, Hebrews 10.14 is the verse there. It's just an amazing verse. Hebrews 10.14 says this. God has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. It's an amazing verse. He's already made perfect those who are yet working things out. We are already before God sanctified, holy, pure. Now, are you wholly sanctified and pure yet? No. But you are acting according to your heavenly status, according to who you are in Christ. You're living that out. I did it earlier, but I'm going to come back to it. But for me, the most telling verse that made me kind of finally understand what the gospel is about how I live was the Romans 12.1. Okay? I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. All right, now let me tell you how I read that verse much of my life. Okay, here's how I, it's not what it says, but here's what I read. I beseech you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, and then you'll be holy and acceptable to God. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. But isn't that the way we read it? You be a good living sacrifice, and then you'll be holy and acceptable to God. Listen, holy and acceptable are not proclamations of what you will become. They are declarations of what you are. Well, how can I be holy and acceptable to God? I mean, I sin. I, no, no. 
in view of God's what? Mercy. That's what you are. I, I see it with my wife, again, better at this than I am. I mean, she can deal with a child, you know, kind of this, this rebellious teenager who's just seething with anger, you know, and rebellion. And my wife will look at a child and she'll say, you know, Corey, you please me so much. And Corey will go, oh, mom. <laughs> you know, and she'll just kind of melt, you know. But that's what's supposed to happen. That when we have the gospel saying to us in all our sin and weakness and rebellion, I love you, my child. You're mine. I'm not walking away from you. That people melt, right? The kindness of God leads to what? Repentance, Romans 2.4. That when we understand how great is the grace of God, the reason that we are unfolding the grace of God in all of Scripture is that we recognize it ultimately breaks the human heart in humility before God. Um, it, 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 it may strike you as odd and backwards, but what I will ultimately say is the reason that we are preaching the grace of God in all of Scripture is because we actually want people to love Christ more. That people will say, you can't keep talking about grace. If you keep talking about grace, people will do whatever they want. Right? And, and you, now you have to say, now wait a second, you know, there, there's a certain logic in that, Right? I mean, there, there is a math of the mind that says, if God's going to forgive me later, <laughs> why not do it now? I'm just gotta, you know, there's a math of the mind that really works. I mean, you and I can't say, no, God won't forgive you later. I mean, you actually believe he will. <laughs> you know? So you can't deny the gospel. But, but listen, why do we still teach people that the grace of God is greater than their sin? Because we believe there's a chemistry of the heart that is stronger than the math of the mind. And the chemistry of the heart says, if he loves me that much, then I'm going to walk with him. And we're going to take a break now, okay? About five minutes, because we know it's getting late, okay? Five-minute break, and here's what we're going to do. If grace is in all the Scripture, how does it promote godliness rather than license? Hear the question? If, if, if grace is really there, and we're saying it's, 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 it's showing how God is dealing with sinful people in such a loving way. How is that actually going to promote godliness rather than license? Okay, five minutes, get the caffeine, and then we'll come back. Okay? <laughs>